Malakarja, Jerry Adams and Shaw Arish, August Morris Grata Sola Gomsa, Gul Shibsha Gulyar Gumoy. This has been a past week anyway, a, a week of anniversaries of legacy issues been very much in focus. We had the the outcome of the trial of the British soldier David Holden for the murder of Aidan McInnesby and his uh, suspended sentence and solidarity with uh, the family of Aidan McInnesby and obviously with all of the families of all of the victims of the conflict. And it's also this, this this week and marks another anniversary of the killing of six men in the New Lodge Road in North Belfast. And last weekend was the 51st anniversary of the very deliberate murder of 14 Derry civil rights marchers by the British Parachute Regiment in Derry. And you know, the way the British dealt with that gives us a, a sense of this controversy around legacy issues and the Brits bringing in their bill of shame, really nothing new. Because following Bloody Sunday, the inquiry set up, the Widgery inquiry, blamed the organisers of the march, blamed the victims, and blamed the IRA. And Widgery accused the dead of being gunmen and bombers. And according to the line from London, the actions of the Paras were legal. And Martin McGuinness and I were in Guildhall Square in Derry when the Savile Report was finally published in June 2010. It totally contradicted Widgery. It established that the victims were all innocent. It was a vindication for the families who had campaigned for all of those years. It concluded that the organisers of the march were not to blame for what happened. And it was acknowledged that the British soldiers fired the first shot and continued firing without any provocation. And uh, Savile dismissed any suggestion that the British parachute soldiers acted out of panic or fear or confusion. Their actions, he said, were unjustified and unjustifiable. But those conclusions were not the end of the matter. It's clear that the report tries very hard to limit blame for what happened to the soldiers on the ground who carried out the killing. And that is a fault. And so too is the effort of the British government to deny families access to justice. 51 years later, the Bloody Sunday families and all those other families are still campaigning. I want to commend their courage. And I want to commend also the determination of the families of the Oma bomb atrocity, who succeeded in getting uh, an inquiry into that dreadful event. And we'll have to wait and see what the terms of reference and other details of how that inquiry will do its business. So, you know, it is a time to be, uh, I suppose, conscious that many, many people in the course of the conflict suffered and suffered grievously. 
And we need to work very, very hard and the British government needs to fulfil its leadership responsibilities and its obligations in this regard. We need to work very, very hard to draw out all of the pain and all of the suffering by dealing with survivors and victims and their families the way they want dealt with. And some of you may have also seen just in, in the last couple of weeks that there have been billboards calling on the Irish government to establish a citizens' assembly on Irish unity. They've been popping up all over the place. And I think that's a very good idea. I support the concept of a citizens' assembly. I like the idea of participative democracy. I attended in my tenure in Leinster House, I attended quite a few of the citizens' assemblies. In fact, I attended all of them that were uh, active while I was uh, a TD and found it a very useful and uh, empowering and educational process. So the, the, the current campaign, or at least the current phase of the campaign, because, you know, uh, different civic groups from Gales Together to uh, Ireland's Future to all, all the other various individuals and organisations who are trying to get a handle on the future have argued for a Citizens' Assembly as part of planning for the future. And it's interesting now we're, we're approaching, I was talking about anniversaries a moment ago, we're approaching uh, the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. And in many ways, the move into Citizens' Assemblies, notwithstanding the current difficulties in the process and the way the Unionists have uh, withdrawn from the institutions and so on, a Citizens' Assembly is a very, very natural consequence of the Good Friday Agreement because the agreement affords the people of the island of Ireland the opportunity to decide through referendums, north and south, if they wish to end the union with Britain or establish a united Ireland, or if they wish to continue, I should say, more correctly, with the union with Britain or to have self-determination and set out our own society on our own terms. And that, 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 this is the first time this, this mechanism uh, was, was ever put in place. It's the first time that there's a peaceful and uh, democratic route to end in the Union with uh, Britain. So I, I think all of that's to the good. And I think as I see these posters appearing and I, I, I listen to the discourse and you turn on your radio, you turn on your television, you pick up your local newspaper, you go on to social media, more and more people are engaging about what the future should be uh, like. And you know, people are understandably and rightly putting forward their own conditions. You know, they, they want a rights-based society. They, they, they want a public national health service. They want everybody to be treated properly and no one left behind. 
and they want harmony and tolerance between the different sections of the people in this island. And of course there are others who don't want uh, the union to end and they too are entitled to their views. But it's interesting reflecting back to the Good Friday Agreement. If you go back even before that, like I say, go back four decades when those of us who were in leadership positions in, in, in Sinn Féin and we started setting out uh, our, our vision or at least the questions and we set our sights on uh, how, how do you get a peace process and there were, there were those who said it was impossible. There would never be a peace process, they said. Things could never be uh, resolved. But they were wrong. They were wrong. And there were those who said that an agreement was impossible. And they also were wrong. So, think of that when you hear others today saying that unity is impossible. Because they also are wrong. Unity is possible, not inevitable, but is possible and will happen. And we who want unity stay united, stay cohesive, stay strategic, stay active, but particularly and importantly reach out to others. This is the, the phase of intelligent persuasion, of generous persuasion. And we need to work intelligently and we need to win people over, including Northern Protestants and others who are concerned, who don't want Irish unity, who need to be uh, reassured that they are going to be looked after uh, in that new dispensation. So the Citizens Assembly is the perfect mechanism for doing that. It's a, it's a key step in this process of persuasion. It's an important mechanism, a forum, a public forum, for democratising the debate. And in the past, Irish governments have held several successful citizens' assemblies. They, they, they helped deliver marriage equality, the repeal of the Eighth Amendment and other important uh, issues. Now, the reality is that the Irish government is against unity referendums and consequently has rejected at this time the Citizens' Assembly proposal. But the establishment of a Citizens' Assembly, or indeed Citizens' Assemblies, is of crucial importance in preparing the way for the unity referendums. It, it, it will deliberate on the integration of public services, the All-Ireland Economy, culture, rights and identity, the shape and the form of new democratic institutions. So that's all important planning work. We don't want a repeat of the Brexit referendum. We want things to be brought together harmoniously, therapeutically, and for everyone to be informed and to be part of the process, to own the process. And this is one of the uh, mainstream issues of our time, and it's one of the most important discussions in our society at this time. And as I said previously, it's a democratic exercise. It's the right of citizens to have their say in the future. And Professor Brendan O'Leary, in his recent book, 
making sense of a United Ireland writes, the need to prepare for the possibility of reunification affects all on this island and affects our diasporas. This book, that's Brendan's book, is a call for effective preparation, accurate information and informed judgment. How will reunification happen, if it does, and how should it happen, so that it can happen as well as possible? And he's right. Professor O'Leary is right. The Irish government needs to plan for the future and not ignore it. So on a totally different uh, topic and to round off on this week's podcast, the very, very cold weather, that very recent cold snap and it's enduring yet. And the sniffles of many of my associates reminded me of when I was a young curate in the Duke of York pub and commercial court in Belfast in the mid-1960s. And in those days, a hot whiskey was the cure for colds of all kinds. And the Duke's a hot cold rain was the much-praised preference of hot whiskey drinkers, whether they had a cold or not. But in the winter, cold rain whiskey was regularly utilised to see off the ravages of Belfast chills for all and sundry. Now, the Coleraine distillery was located in the town of Coleraine and distilling had been part and had been going on in Ireland since the 17th century. And the Coleraine distillery was converted from an old mill in 1820. In 1845, it was the whisky of choice of the London House of Commons. So H.C. was put on the labels of its bottles. Coleraine was reputed to be one of the most meticulous distillers ever. No whiskey was bottled under 10 years old. The distillery was eventually bought out by Bushmills and production continued until 1878, Cumbleskill until 1978. But today, Coleraine whiskey is still available courtesy of Irish distilleries. Now, Coleraine was not the only com- commodity sold by us in the Dukes for the pleasure of those who were fond of a wee drink. And by the way, this column is not an encouragement to drink. It can be a curse if it's not contained. Moderation is the watchword. And the Duke of York prided itself on the moderation of its customers and its stock of fine liquor. And this included liqueurs with fine flavours from coffee to almond to lemon to orange or mint. Some were used for medicinal purposes or as a hair of a dog or the hair of the dog. And the hair of the dog was a very important medicine. It saved, saved numerous lives. Other ways these potions were part of little concoctions constructed purely to tickle taste buds and liberate the imagination of the imbiber. Alongside fine brandies and rums, there was tequila and other rarer alcohol from real Russian vodka imported from the US SR by our intrepid boss, we Jimmy Keebney, to draft barley wine. Now, lest you know or don't know, barley wine is actually a beer. 
Draft barley wine is so strong, customers were limited to carefully rationed servings. I've got to say that the Duke was a great place to work in. Its clientele included many journalists from the Irish, from the newsletter, including Ralph Bud Bossens, Ken Jimmy Kennedy, Mervyn Polly, Jack Midgley, and Tommy Hamilton. And trade union officials, Labour Party and Communist Party stalwarts like Betty Sinclair, Jimmy Stewart and Edwina Stewart, and Derek Peters, who later helped found NICRA, the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association, were regulars in the Duke of York. Liam McMillan, Prunchies McArt, Jim Harkey, Republican activists were less regular visitors and also founders of the Civil Rights Association. And they rubbed shoulders with writers and broadcasters like Sam Hannibal, John Morrow and Davy Hammond. And there were also singers like Jackie Fallis, Davy Scott or Dave Scott, Terry Brown, and musicians who included Leslie Bingham and Brian Lavery, and Ted Fury, the father of all the Furies, played for us one time. Mrs. Keebney ruled the roost with her daughter from their rooms above the Dukes. Their son and brother, wee Jimmy, was the boss downstairs. The Duke, unusually in those days, served food during the day, mostly soup and sandwiches, but great soup and super sandwiches. We also served coffee. My first taste of real coffee with freshly ground beans was in the Duke of York. We Jimmy taught me how to make Irish coffees. We also bottled our own Guinness. In fact, many pubs did that. Draft Guinness was porter slowly drawn from Firkins. Which brings me back to hot cold rains. We Jimmy used sugar. I used honey. Here is my recipe for a hot Rain. Put a teaspoon in a suitable glass, heat the glass with boiling water, discard this water but keep the teaspoon in the glass, then add a good go of Korean whiskey and top it up with more boiling water. Ditto with the clove, the lemon and the honey. But do not stir, leave that pleasure to the drinker as he or she savours the heating vapours of this elixir. Sip. Enjoy Slauncher. And to finish off this week, we have the Dubliners and they're going to sing for us the pub with no beer. What a thought. Gunyiri and Ta Libsha, Guji Shiv Slan, Amor Aharja, Amor.
ropes He breasts up to the bar Pulls a one from his coat But the smile on his face Quickly turns to a sneer When the barman says suddenly The pub got no beer There's a dog on the veranda For his master he waits But the bus is inside Drinking wine with his mates He hurries for cover and he cringes in fear It's no place for a dog round a pub with no beer Oh, Billy the blacksmith the first time in his life Has gone home cold sober to his darling wife He walks in the kitchen to shed an early Oh, it's lonesome away from your kindred and all By the 